What's up, this your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Looking to step up your Mother's Day flowers? The Home Depot has an idea. Let mom's green thumb do some digging with colorful flowers, pots, and premium soils to bring out the most in her patios, walkways, and gardens. Right now, get Vigoro Potting Soil, just $8.97 for strong, healthy, vibrant plants indoors and outside. Shop our wide selection online and pick up your order in-store and give mom the gift of a beautiful garden. Get Vigoro Potting Soil, just $8.97 at The Home Depot. How doers get more done. Picasso knows your vacation home is your best home. It's the place that brings family and friends together. It's where you're the best version of yourself. Picasso makes it easy to co-own a luxury vacation home in amazing locations. Listings start at 200 k for one-eighth ownership. Picasso does all the work for you. Luxury furnishings, maintenance, billing, scheduling, and more. And you can resell on Picasso's Marketplace anytime, historically for a 10% gain. Visit Picasso to see thousands of listings. That's P-A-C-A-S-O dot com. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. Asking the right questions can greatly impact your future, especially when it comes to your finances. So if you're looking for a financial advisor you can trust, certified financial planner professionals are committed to acting in your best interest. That's why it's got to be a CFP. Find your CFP professional at letsmakeaplan.org. Brought to you by Toyota. Let's go places. Welcome to Forward Thinking. Hey there and welcome to Forward Thinking, the podcast that looks at the future and says, tomorrow we can drive around this town. I'm Jonathan Strickland. I'm Lauren Volkebaum. And I'm Joe McCormick. And today, we're going to be talking about a very special subject that's sort of a follow-up to something we talked about earlier this month. Uh, yeah, on December 3rd, we published a podcast called Self... or a podcast episode. That terminology always wakes me out. Anyway, it was called Self-Reconfiguring Modular Robots Go! Yeah, and they went. And they did go. They did. They went everywhere. <laughs> that's it was kind sort of, of a mess. kind of the thing they do, right? <laughs> yeah, the concept of that is the the... A robot that is made up of smaller components, each of which is its own robot. Right. right. And so it's sort of, in aggregate, like a Transformer. Yeah. Except actually better than a Transformer, because a Transformer can only turn into two shapes. Or yeah, maybe yeah. three for yeah. some of them. Sure, sure. But it's basically either a, a car or a robot or a gun or a robot or et cetera. Right. Right. And so a self-reconfiguring modular robot, on the other hand, would be able to reshape itself into any number of different shapes because it's made of identical individual components that can adjust their position and functionality with relationship to all the other ones. Right. And we talked about a couple of different types. We talked about uh, MIT's M-Blocks. We talked about Harvard's Kilobots. Now, the Kilobots are not uh, modular robots in the same sense, but they demonstrate the the swarm behavior that would be necessary. The idea that each individual robot would be able to move into the correct position to form whatever shape is needed. Uh, they're more of a tool to test out that kind of technology, that sort of artificial intelligence that will be a, nece a necessary component for a true self-reconfiguring modular robot. Uh, right, because anything that large isn't ultimately going to be as useful as, as something with parts that are much smaller. Sure. The, the, the smaller the parts, the more useful this kind of stuff is going to be. Yeah. Right. And of course, as we've mentioned plenty of times on the show, miniaturization is hard. Oh, yeah. Especially when you need to power all these elements. But let's be optimists for a bit. Sure. 
And imagine... This is going to be weird. <laughs> not, not for me. <laughs> and imagine how small you could make these modular robotic elements. Four foot one. That was you, t- you do not have a very powerful imagination. <laughs> it's a time bandits reference. <laughs> <laughs> um no, I wanna I wanna talk about how this applies to a subject known as programmable matter. All right. So let's actually talk. What is programmable matter? Well, programmable matter is matter. It's so it has substance, mm-hmm. it has weight, you can hold it in your hand. It's got mass. But it can alter its own physical characteristics in a non-random way based on user input or pre-programmed behavior. Gotcha. So yeah, this, where did this idea come from? Well, it, the, 1991. Yeah, <laughs> let's turn back the time. Watch the hands of the clock spin backwards. Uh, no, it was it was pro- the idea itself. The term was proposed by uh, Tommaso Toffoli and Norman Margolis, two MIT computer scientists. Now, their concept of programmable matter was really more about tiny computers that could perform parallel processing and communicate with one another that could simulate the physics of real matter. But we're talking about a simulation. They weren't replicating. These these small computers in this proposal weren't meant to take on physical shapes, but rather be able to communicate in a way that would allow them to process huge amounts of information very rapidly. Okay, but of course, subsequently, people really expanded on this idea. Right. We ended up hearing about uh, another approach where they said, what if we took the same concept But instead of just talking about computers, we apply it to robotics. So each computer is itself a tiny robot that has some ability to move around, to communicate, to bind with fellow robots, and that they would be able to uh, have a a tiny processor inside them to, uh, to take on commands and then enact those commands. And then you could in theory, have this mass of robots that could create actual physical structures, larger macro structures. So kind of similar to the modular robots we talked about before, but on an even smaller scale. Okay, but what people are really thinking about today is something kind of amazing. Picture you've got a little blob of gray junk. It looks like putty or goop. Or jam or something. It's just this kind of amorphous material. Great Robotic jam. jam. But you give it data. Okay. And so the it is actually made of tons of tiny spherical elements that are all joined together and all individually have computing capability. Somewhere deep inside each of those tiny little particles is a circuit. Mm-hmm. And it takes the data you put in and says, oh, okay. I need to be over here now in relation to this other particle. And they all do that at the same time to form a shape. Mm-hmm. And the shape is whatever you tell it. And then if you are tired of that shape, you can tell it to make a totally different shape, and it will. Pretty creepy, huh? Pretty, Pretty awesome. Cool. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it's <laughs> creepy and great. Like, it's this like, is sort of, a, if you want to get really crazy with it, it's sort of the T-1000 idea. Yeah, it's it's T-1000 meets Silly Putty. Right. Uh, to be more realistic, it's sort of like a, not a fully functioning autonomous robot running around in the, uh, in the Southern it's... California area. Uh-huh. But it's something that can change its own shape at will based on what you want. Yeah. So you could think of it kind of as, as a bunch of, uh, you know, modules that can form various structures but the modules themselves are so small that your your list of possible structures you can make is in the ideal implementation practically unlimited yeah imagine they're as small as grains of sand right as as if sand could make anything out of itself right it's almost as though this is some kind of uh automatically sculpting clay yeah that's a good name for it (laughs) But you didn't come up with it first. No, I did not. Not at all. Actually, uh, one cool name for a particular implementation of this idea of programmable matter is claytronics. And you might have heard this term before. It's a popular and cool idea in futurism circles. Mm-hmm. But w- what's behind the actual claytronics idea? Well, I mean, it came out of Carnegie Mellon and Intel, along with a few other partnerships. There is an actual project. There's a great website where they kind of talk about 
uh, what Claytronics is all about and how they hope to achieve it, which is, is pretty neat. Um, the project's purpose is to, and I quote, it, uh, it combines modular robotics, systems, nanotechnology, and computer science to create the dynamic three-dimensional display of electronic information. So think of this as an alternative to a computer monitor, right? You are you can actually use this to visualize data in a physical form. So you could you could in theory use this to do something as simple as compare the market share of two different operating systems and have two physical uh, uh, representations pop up. And maybe there's a, a, a large sphere and a small sphere to demonstrate what the two different uh, uh, companies or operating systems you're looking at, how they compare against one another. Mm-hmm. Or you could do something much more complex, like what we're talking about, the idea of being able to make any particular physical shape and then reshape it just by you know running a program. Right. And so... This technology is obviously based on the power of the individual particle right. that's moving about to create these shapes. And in the field of claytronics, this is the claytronic atom, the, yeah. the catom, they yes. call it. Right. And the catom, like a lot of the units we're talking about, is modular in that you can have that connect with other catoms to make these larger shapes, these macro size shapes. Right. They don't have to be specialized. They're all the same thing. Yeah. Yeah, uh, and that's not always the case with programmable matter. There are other implementations. Sure. You know, this was one approach. There's another one. Uh, Cornell's Creative Machines Lab is working on a lot of different uh, ways of looking at programmable matter. Uh-huh. So, gotta keep in mind that we're talking about uh, uh, something that's in its infancy here. So we're still experimenting with different approaches to how to get to this kind of uh, a future where we have programmable matter. So one of the things that Cornell's uh, Creative Machines Lab is looking at is uh, using these tiny building blocks that they call voxels. These are physical objects that they, you know, voxels sort of like pixels. A pixel is an individual oh, nice. unit of display on your display. Why am I thinking it sounds like an alien from Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy? The Vogans. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. With their terrible poetry. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Voxels in this case, you know, it, it makes sense because a, a single voxel would be a a single unit that together with other voxels can make up this physical shape, just as a single pixel is kind of useless. You have to have lots of pixels so that you can actually represent whatever visual uh, image you want to, to have on your screen. I like that terminology. Yeah. That's kind of neat. It it makes it, it makes it easier to explain to people, right? Like think of it as just, it's an individual unit. It's kind of like an, again, just like Claytronics goes with the catom where you think of the atom as the individual unit. This is, very similar. Uh, now, these building blocks could come in different varieties. So you could have voxels that are soft or hard. Uh, they could come in different colors. Some might be conductive. Some might be insulators. Some could have robotic elements like sensors or actuators. So you would get an assembler of some type that would print out those building blocks, you know, whichever ones you needed uh, for whatever it was you were planning on building. And then you would be able to put it together to make the thing you need it to make. So I, I think of it more like Tinker Toys or Legos. You would get the different blocks you need, and you look at the instructions, and then you can build the actual thing. So it's a little different from Claytronics, where you would theoretically be able to change that shape over and over. I'm not exactly certain that the voxels would have that same capability. It may not, but it's, again, kind of a stepping stone toward that programmable matter uh, where you would be able to change things on the fly. One of the other things I liked about the voxel approach is how they describe building a 3D object, that it's a digital method as opposed to an analog method. Hmm. So analog, you would consider that to be a continuous shape. So, you know, it has curves, it has edges, um, and but it's all continuous. Digital is there's either matter there or there's not. It's a one or a zero. Right. So it's sort of the difference between you know, a real image and a pixelated image on a screen. Yeah. Yeah. So you would, if you were trying to create something, you would say, all right, where, where do the individual voxels need to be? And where do they absolutely not need to be? Where do they need to be absent? And, uh, you know, I've also likened it to the idea of, uh, we've talked about this with sculpting where you cut everything that isn't the thing you want out, Mm -hmm. like cut everything that doesn't look like David needs to be cut out of that block of granite until you're left with David. Or marble, I guess I should say. At any rate, <laughs> what, what do I know? I'm no artist. Um, 
But anyway, it's kind of neat because it's it's that one and zero approach. But there are other projects at Cornell that also relate to programmable matter. And my favorite one out of all of them, and keep in mind, there are lots, is called jamming granular materials. Ooh. Yeah, it's not fish. That sounds unpleasant. It's not, it's not, wi- it's not widespread panic. It's nothing like that. It's not that kind of jamming. Uh, <laughs> This this is actually looking at the way. It sounds like a medical condition. Like <laughs> yeah. you end up in the emergency room because you've got a case of jamming granular materials. Yeah. I'm, I'm sorry, Miss. <laughs> He's got jamming granular materials all uh, up in his materials. Well, the the idea about this is is grain very fine grains of of matter can behave like a fluid if they are loosely packed into a container. So imagine that you've got a jar that is maybe half filled with very fine dry sand and you move the jar around and the sand flows almost like a fluid it's similar more like a fluid than a solid right mm-hmm. but then let's say that you have twice as much sand packed in there so it's actually really tightly uh, uh packed inside that jar then it is rigid uh, even if that jar were made out of a, a flexible material like plastic, you would have this rigid structure inside of it because you had jammed the 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 gran- granules so tightly together. There, the same sort of idea has been uh, proposed for types of these individual units for programmable matter, where you have some mechanism uh, connected that can either uh, compact or then relax and allow this sort of granular material to either become rigid or soft to change different shapes. So you would have the units, and they would all be connected to each other in specific ways previously. Like, they wouldn't disconnect and reconnect necessarily. They might all be connected uh, permanently in one in one type of, type of structure. But based upon these little links between them made out of this granular stuff, they're they take on specific shapes because they're either rigid or they're soft. And it doesn't matter. The other reason they go with this approach is it doesn't matter what the temperature is. They don't need to change the temperature to change that rigidity. It's just whether it's compact or whether it's loose. So I thought that was pretty neat. The, um, the image they had, imagine kind of a pyramid, uh, where each it's, it's a, it's a, just the outline of pyramid, the structure of a pyramid without the, the actual physical sides. Mm -hmm. And, uh, each line is, a little soft plastic container of sand. Mm-hmm. So when it's all rigid, it stands up like a pyramid. And when it's soft, it's just, it's just a little <laughs> pile. So uh, it's, it's again, just showing that there are multiple approaches to this idea. And uh, there are a lot of other universities and companies and research centers looking into this, including companies like Autodesk Research or Whitesides Group Research, MIT, of course, looking into it, Harvard, we mentioned also. There are tons of different approaches and no one yet has the, you know, the way to do this. But, oh, yeah, definitely yeah. not. <laughs> but by coming at it from so many different angles, it's awesome, right? Because it means that we have we're not putting all of our eggs in one basket, and it may mean that we ultimately find different ways to do the same sort of output, which gives us a lot more flexibility. You're gonna have like the Blu-ray HD DVD wars all right. over again, but about how you turn putty into a hammer. I'll go. I'll go to CES <laughs> one year and and. The week before CES, one will have pulled out of the show because it's clear that it's the loser. The first time I went to CES, <laughs> but there will HD... still be twenty-eight putty hammers there. Yeah, HD DVD pulled out of CES the first Ooh. year I ever went. There was this one enormous blank spot on the CES oh. show floor where they were supposed to be. Oh, <laughs> where people were all taking naps, I guess. Harsh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, rate... well, I think we should look at what are the possible uses for something like. Claytronics or other similar forms of programmable matter. Yeah, yeah, we've talked about this a little bit, but let's let's go deeper into it. Okay, well, I wanted to gather a few different things here. One of them would be the tangible 3D representations generated by data, and we sort of talked about these earlier. So one thing is you could simply use 3D objects to represent numbers and data. Mm-hmm. But the other one would be that you could sort of have what I would think of like a Google Docs of 3D objects. So imagine you've got a saved document that is controlled by a digital file on your computer, mm-hmm. but it's represented by a 3D object, a real tangible 3D object you can hold in your hand. 
and you can make edits to it. Yeah, yeah. With your hands. Yeah, it's sort of like instead of having to, uh, you know, if you if you get a three D printer and you print out a prototype. Uh, if you want to make changes to that prototype, you have to print another one from the ground yeah. up. You got to go uh, back in and redesign it digitally. Redesign the digital thing, and and then, well, I mean, and you'd still be redesigning the digital thing. But you'd be doing it physically with your yeah. hands. But, right, you, right. you could just push and say, I want it, an indent here. Yeah. So instead of going and redesigning it on the computer, yeah. you just press it in. Mm -hmm. And then and... those changes would be reflected because we're talking about a two way street here. Yeah. Uh, with a 3D printer, there's a one-way flow of information. It goes from the computer to the printer, which then creates the three-dimensional object. Mm -hmm. With this implementation, it's more like an interactive display. You create the thing, but then you can actually manipulate the thing you have on the display. In this case, the display is a three-dimensional object, and that gets reflected in the file that you originally created. Right. So that's it's it's kind of uh, it it cuts out another step in prototyping, which could mean that the prototyping uh, process, which has already been sped up phenomenally because oh, of 3D yeah. printing, becomes even faster. Right. And so this would make a big difference, I think, to people who are like engineers, but also to people who are just designers, people making art and things like that in their or, homes. Or or even designing uh, products like yeah. smartphones and things like that. I mean, if for whatever industry, yeah. Yeah. If Johnny Ives get a hold of this thing, forget it. Game over. <laughs> <laughs> um, another interesting use for something like this would be a kind of utility putty. That that phrase appeared in my brain. I, I, I wonder if I read that somewhere before. Hmm, I'm um, not sure. I feel like that may be a term that has been used by someone before. But anyway, well, just that's call it Tilla Putty and now it's yours. <laughs> <laughs> right. Patent there you it. Go. Um, um, no. Well, wherever this idea comes from, the utility putty would be if you imagine a kind of a small puddle of this beige or gray. It really doesn't matter what color it is. Let's call it pink. Okay. Uh, this small puddle of pink putty sitting on your kitchen counter. Uh, all right. I'm with you so far. You're making dinner now. Okay. And so you need a ladle and a bowl and a cutting board and a knife. Okay. So you call them up on your kitchen utensils app on your computer or on your phone, and the puddle of putty assembles itself into these shapes and becomes rigid. You use them like you would to prepare dinner. Then when you're done with them, they dissolve back into the putty. Now, this could be a massive space saver in the home. Imagine if you, like, only had to call furniture into existence on demand when you needed it, and when you didn't need that piece of furniture, you could dissolve it. Yeah. Or think about how useful something like this might be for portability purposes. Say you're going on a camping trip, and if you've been on a camping trip, you take the tent along with you. It is a large unpleasant, unwieldy object that's <laughs> difficult to assemble. There's, there's tent poles, there's a fabric, or yeah, yeah, yeah whole, but whole bunches of different parts. Let's say instead you go out camping and instead you just bring along a bucket of utility goop. <laughs> I got a bucket of tent right here. Yeah, you. so you just pour the bucket out on the ground, cue up the sort of shelter design on your phone, and it assembles itself. You know, Joe, I have to say that tent design is beyond the pale Oh. oh, oh, oh. Now, we may be able to offer some pretty relevant criticisms of an idea like this in the next section because you, you immediately start thinking, like, wait a minute, where does the power for it to form that shape come from sure. out in the woods and stuff like that? But uh, just a couple other ideas. How about the 3D facts? This is something the Claytronics people, I think, talked about. Uh, it goes like this. Say you want to send a copy of a three-dimensional object to somebody far away. Well, you could just submerge it into a tub of these particles, like catoms or whatever they are. You've got a bucket of them, and you dip it underneath them. And then, of course, once it's submerged, the particles can sense all of the contours of the object, mm -hmm. and then it can recreate that shape at the, the other, other end of the line. Yeah. And here's the most sci-fi of all, but it's something I have seen talked about, the idea of sort of the ultimate telepresence. Instead of just sending your voice, instead of just or sending your face, 
you send a real physical replication of your body and movements across the telephone wires. I think a giant pink blobby Jonathan Strickland is the stuff of my nightmares. Yeah. Come here, I love you. <laughs> Teach me to love. Yeah, uh, even without that particular image in my head, that, yeah. that one struck me as being creepy. As I, I'd like to apologize to everyone uh, who has not had that image in their heads. Jonathan. Hugging his loved ones from far away <laughs> in a goopy, goopy mess it's and melting me on them halfway through because the power goes out. I am Jonathan, and this is creepy to me. <laughs> all right. All so, right. Uh, well, okay. So, uh, so, other than the fact that we're all creeped out by this, what are some of the challenges that, right. that this sort of stuff faces? Right. We, we d- Joe mentioned a second ago up uh, uh, power. That's that's a huge one. Um, obviously, this faces a lot of challenges. Right. Or otherwise, we'd have it. Right. Well, min- um, miniature- there's a lot of reasons that this is very difficult to create. Right. Miniaturizing power is one of those things that we haven't really cracked yet. Right. We we can miniaturize circuitry to astonishing degrees, but miniaturizing things like batteries is a lot more problematic. Um, assuming that you are using batteries and you're using something that is relying upon a chemical reaction to produce electrons for electricity, that eventually that's going to run out. You're going to have to recharge how do you do that? Like, what's the what's the mechanism, right? What is the actual uh, uh, method of delivery and method of execution? Because if these elements are going to be forming any shapes, if they're going to move about and take on specific forms, they obviously need to have some form of power to do that. They can't just, mm-hmm. you know, do that without any outside influence. There has to be something acting on them. Uh, and it's I go with electricity being the most likely. It's not necessarily the only one. We'll talk about the possible possibility of going a different route in a second, but it's still something that we have to consider. Like, how do we get that to, how do we crack that code? Okay. But also how do you get them to do what you're trying to get them to do? Right. You need these particles all moving around each other. Yeah. And, and anytime that you have motion in a robot, moving parts are a complication. Right. Because they can break and fail and do things that you didn't expect them to do, like totally not work. Yeah. Right. So ideally, you'd want these particles to be able to um, move around relative to each other without having external moving parts. Right, right. And in fact, a lot of work has gone into researching different ways to do that. Even the kilobots, uh, the Harvard kilobots, which look like, you may remember, I, I mentioned it before, it looks kind of like a quarter-sized circuit uh, that's sitting on top of a bunch of little spider legs. Well, those individual legs don't actually have any movement to them. They don't, they don't pivot or move in any way like They're that. They're an inaction figure. Yeah. <laughs> but there's, there is a little vibrating motor that's a part of the circuit board. And the way the motor vibrates determines which way the little thing skitters across the floor. Mm-hmm. So there are a lot of different approaches that are looking into not necessarily just that implementation, but this very, this very idea you're proposing, Joe, the idea of a, a unit that can move around relative to other units without itself having any movement. Moving parts. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I've seen magnets proposed as yep. another thing by by flipping the um, the polarity of a magnet back and forth. You right. Could, you could get things to move around each other. And there's some that are talking about electrostatic forces. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, that's another interesting element that we can talk about. The fact that uh, sticking these things together yeah, is when, going to be a challenge. Once you've moved them into into, into position. relative position, they yeah. need to form up and be solid. Right. Didn't the MIT M blocks, which are definitely bigger than than you know particle size? Sure, yeah, they're uh, like like the size of blocks that that you would give a little kid, like the ones that have the letters. Right, on them. Uh, but they I think had a momentum based movement system, right? Like yeah, they had magnets, and then they would move by having a little flywheel inside that basically you know did the move you do when you're on the swing set as a kid and you kick your legs forward. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's it would like build the, up build up momentum. Right, right. It, it's like the the dancing toaster in Ghostbusters 2. Yeah. Ah, yeah. It actually a lot does like that. It does move <laughs> like that. Like it, it's it you hear it whirring and then there's a sudden jolt and it and it leaps because what's happening is the flywheel starts spinning at an incredible speed. Higher and higher. Uh, yes. Uh, it, just like your love lifts <laughs> yeah. me. Uh <laughs> Ghostbusters 2 is a terrible movie. I don't know why we're referencing oh, it. Oh, anyway, fighting words. When it, okay. uh, it, it really is. You don't love Prince Vigo? When it breaks, uh, as in B-R-A-K-E, it, then that momentum gets shifted into to motion for the block, which mm-hmm. allows it to leap over or onto other sub-objects. So, Super smart. I don't know if that would be doable at a very, very small scale. Like, Could you create 
grains of sand that use momentum to move around? Um, I, I don't well, think... Well, they've got those little electronic gyroscopes, and I still don't really understand how they work, <laughs> but sure. I mean, I'm, I'm sure that if you cause an, an atom's electrons to spin around, then you make it stop real quick, then it can totally <laughs> bounce across the room. I think you would I believe probably, you, Lauren. I, I think you'd probably be looking at other forces rather than momentum on something that's small of a scale. But Why are you killing my dreams, Jonathan? I, you know... You don't love Prince Vigo. I don't care what you think. <laughs> yeah, oh. well, you guys... Oh, you guys! A chasm has uh, entered get off my this lawn. podcast room. Okay. okay, okay. What are some of the other challenges with programmable matter, like the kind we've been talking? Well, about? Well, like we were saying, making them stick together, right? Yeah, that's hard. Like, how do you how do you do that? Yeah, once they're in the the right position relative to one another, how do you get them to lock up and be solid? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, magnets are nice, but obviously, like all of these other issues. It gets harder and harder the more you miniaturize. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, there's also the idea of using things like sockets or clamps. So this would be a physical thing on each individual unit that would allow it to connect to its neighbors. Uh, the Claytronics project's exploring electrostatic latches. Hmm. So uh, you could have an external force applied to this stuff to make it stick to whatever shape it's supposed to be in. But uh, that also gets complicated particularly as you add more and more individual elements to the overall object. Um, you'd also need some form of processor inside each unit, at least on some level. It wouldn't necessarily... That actually seems like the easiest part, almost. Almost. It all depends on how complicated the, the processor is. And yeah. exactly how small we're talking. Yeah. I yeah, mean, because... we, we have been able to vastly miniaturize computing. Definitely the individual components have gotten incredibly tiny. Like a transistor on a microprocessor might be as small as like 14 nanometers in width, which is that's it's impossible for me to even imagine. It's so tiny. Uh, we're getting down to a very small scale with that. And depending upon how complex the processor needs to be for each individual unit, you could get away with a pretty simple one. I mean, if all it needs to know is where its relative position needs to be uh compared to every other unit inside that that group of units, whatever it is, catoms or voxels or whatever, then it may not need to be that complex, right? You might not need that much processing. But if you're talking about adding other elements to it, like sensors or actuators, well, then it starts to get a little more complicated. The processor might need to be a little larger. There might need to be some other uh, elements there. And that's where you start running into some some other challenges. Another thing I want to point out is that the Claytronics project specifically calls out Moore's law as being an enabler for this kind of approach. The idea, uh, that, right? They're they're basing this on the assumption that Moore's law will continue to hold true. Right, that we will be able to continue making more powerful computational units, things like you know processors, at smaller and smaller scales. But if we ever do hit that kind of that wall where we suddenly plateau because we cannot physically make things smaller and still make them work, then that could become an issue. Or it may not mean that it's impossible to make programmable matter. It may just limit how small the individual units can be before we can't make them effective. So it, we might still have programmable matter, but maybe we're talking about larger grains. So we have uh, slightly you know, lower resolution for your macro-sized object once they're all connected together. Mm. Um, now, of course, it could turn out, like people have been predicting the end of, end of Moore's Law shortly after Gordon Moore made the observation. <laughs> yeah. uh, so it may very well be that it's premature to even say that such a thing is going to plateau because uh, we might find other alternative means to keep moving that processing power forward just in a totally different way than what we have been doing. So I don't mean to say that that you know this is untenable. It may be that we have find we find another way of doing it. Um, and there are plenty of engineers who are way smarter than I am who are working on that. So it's just something I wanted to bring up. Another side of the kind of Moore's law argument, which is in essence, a, a physical property problem. Mm -hmm. um, we have the, the, the physical properties of, of particle interaction because they do different things at a macro scale, the, the scale that you and I and all of us run around on, and the scale at which, uh, say, atoms and nanoparticles interact with each other. Right. You're talking about quantum effects now. We're talking about these. What? Y'all never get your hands quantum entangled with like a baseball or something? <laughs> I had an issue of quantum entanglement in college that nearly got me suspended. But at any rate, 
Yeah, it was. <laughs> Whatever that meant, it sounded creepy. What? <laughs> look, look. I had a love of chili cheese fries. Uh. There was an incident. <laughs> I'm not allowed to talk about it more than that. Gosh, you okay. guys just assume the worst. No, I'm sorry. You're I, a sweet man. Thank you. At any rate, uh, no, I was specifically trying to lure you down a dark and, and depressing <laughs> road. Um, at any rate, no. Good job, uh, sir. <laughs> the, you, what, what Lauren was saying is absolutely correct. We get into these quantum effects, which can cause some real issues. Now, granted, we're talking super small here, right? Below the micro scale down to the nano scale. But if right. you are actually going through the ideal implementation of this idea of programmable matter where you're able to make nanoparticles be part of this, you have to take quantum effects into account because right. you've got all sorts of weird things that can happen at that scale. Now, yeah. my guess would be as crazy as it sounds to us to have, you know, say, uh, programmable matter particles that are the size of grains of sand or something, this wouldn't really be much of an issue even on that scale, Right. I mean, I think we'd have to be talking about even smaller than that. Yeah. Uh, yeah, exactly. I mean, you have to get like before we got down to, say, transistors at the 100 nanometer scale, we didn't have to worry so much about something called uh, electron tunneling, which is where an electron can, you know, there's a, you know, you can't ever be certain exactly where an electron is. There's kind of a, a squirrely. Yeah. yeah. Right. There's like a zone and the electron could, in theory, exist at any point within that zone. I'm oversimplifying. I think they're they're probability distribution. Exactly. Right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So let's say that you make an electron gate and the the width, the thickness of the gate is less than what that probability region you know covers. The probability region actually overlaps it. So the electron should be on one side of the gate, but this probability probability distribution states that there's a chance. Maybe a small one, but there's a chance that it could be on the other side of that gate. Well, if there's a chance, that means sometimes the it electron is, yeah. yeah. Which means that the electron is has passed through, it's as if the electron has tunneled through that gate, even though it has not physically done so. The gate never opened. The electron is able to pass over because it's that, it probabilistically, there was a chance for it. Yeah, the world um, is weird. Yeah, it real, also real it also strange. means it makes your computer less reliable. It means you yeah. could get computer errors. So uh, now we're probably I, I'm very skeptical that we're ever going to get to a point where we can deal with matter on a scale that small uh, to make it programmable. But that's only based upon my lim very limited understanding of nanotechnology and physics. It may be that one day in the future we can control matter at that degree, but uh, it would really surprise me. Okay, but hey, speaking of controlling matter um, and and physical and quantum properties of things, uh, if, if we're going to reach that point anyway, there's a possibility of using chemical or physical interactions to create programmable material. Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's the kind of stuff that a lot of researchers who are thinking about 4D printing are being inspired by, like a protein folding and, and DNA stuff and biological interactions on that intracellular level, um, and, and in parallel, crystallization patterns as well. Those kind of processes happen all around us all the time. And if we could harness them, it could be just as effective as building wee little robots. Right. In fact, uh, Jean-Marie Len proposed, even before we got to the term programmable matter, I mean, this predates that, uh, Jean-Marie Len proposed developing synthetic molecules that could follow the rules of self-organization, which would be determined by chemists, by the actual construction of those molecules. Once you know the structure of the molecules and how they interact with each other, you know what form the macro object will eventually take uh, to, conform, to, to form these more complex structures. And Len called it informed matter. Uh, so there's a lot of theoretical <laughs> work in nanotechnology that follows that particular philosophy, just like what Lauren was saying. Yeah. So, yeah, it's it's and it, it is much more similar to 4D printing. Uh, if you've seen that video of forward thinking that that would be closer to what we're talking about here. Mm -hmm. um, OK, so I want to round out this episode with some naysaying. All right. Say I've, been, nay. I've been holding it in all episode. Uh, OK, D do we need to worry if, if we're starting to make this this programmable putty stuff? Do we need to worry about the gray goo apocalypse? Uh, no, no. Because because they're Greg... not self-replicating. Right. No. Well, I mean, we don't need to worry about it for a couple of reasons. Uh, <laughs> number one, 
I am very, very skeptical of the Grey Goo apocalypse, even if you're actually talking about molecular assemblers, which I'm skeptical of to begin with. Mm -hmm. Uh, But also, this is not the same thing as a molecular assembler. A molecular assembler is something that at the, you know, molecular level would be building new particles, making new molecules, and eventually assembling matter out of them. And the, the terrible idea is that what if they start making copies of themselves and, and it gets then out of they control. turn the whole world into molecular assemblers. You know, right. they just eat through everything like using an army it as, of ants. Yeah, just using that as the raw material to build more. Yeah, the, the difference between programmable materials and replicators is that replicators are kind of like carpenters, right? Car- these are these are the things that make other objects. They themselves don't form that object, whereas programmable matter is just stuff that can conform to whatever shape or or, you know, substance you need to perform a specific task but it itself is that thing it's not making a chair it itself becomes a chair right okay so it's not melting down your old chair to to make uh, right yeah, a new right. chair i i can't really imagine it would be all that dangerous i don't know maybe if you ate a bunch of it like yeah um, yeah keep it out of to- toddler's hands for example okay do yeah. we need to worry about people creating an army of t1000 see now that one's more realistic <laughs> That's you the know, I, best response to that question. <laughs> I don't know, because I, I I mean, all of this, if it's realizable, is pretty far away. Sure. But what seems much more likely to me is the ability to uh, to sort of assemble and then dissolve rigid shapes at will. Not so much the ability to create complex moving and thinking objects. However, we did talk about the possibility of using it as a form of visualization for telepresence. Yeah, so if and as I that, noted at that time, I think that's one of the more out there yeah, kind of yeah, sci-fi. Yeah. So it may be scenarios. that it may be that we could, in that same sci-fi future where we could make this as a telepresence, you could make something akin to the T-1000, although maybe it wouldn't have its own intelligence. It would be operating under some other uh, commands that were remotely... Con- so it'd be a remote-controlled T-1000, okay. as opposed to, to a self-aware, self-actualized yeah, T-1000. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, AI would have to advance a great deal as well in, in this time yeah. if we were to, to be, create an actual T-1000. To be as smart as Robert Patrick and yes. as suave. yeah. Suave, yeah. suave guy, but let He's us all. He's no David Duchovny. Let's though. let's all make a pact that we're just not gonna pair that kind of AI power with that kind of programmable material. <laughs> I can power. I can almost guarantee I won't. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Okay. What what about one last one? What about someone hacking your claytronics and I don't know, like making them attack you or like stick solely in the shape of Dolph Lundgren's face or something? I mean, uh, I mean. You know, maybe. I, I I think of it in the same way that uh, like a hacker could hack into your system and cause your display to show whatever the hacker wanted. If you're yeah. if you're thinking of claytronics or programmable matter as a type of display technology, there's no reason that the same thing couldn't hold true. I'm trying to think what it could. I, I mean, like, so again, we're assuming it's not going to be able to create a robot that walks over to you and kills you. It. might be able to form itself into the shape of a knife or something. Yeah. Yeah, Or, well, I mean, I I don't know. Like if, if you, if you've got a chair, a claytronics chair and. Oh, like it dissolves the chair while you're sitting on it. (laughs) I see what I imagine. (laughs) It creates like a pokey arm and pokes you with it. Oh no. What I imagine is, is trolling people. (laughs) So like when a star Wars nerd like myself decides that they want to make their own lightsaber hilt using this stuff. Instead, it forms a hand giving the Vulcan salute. Like that would be the kind of like, like, no, it's not even the right star thing, man. Yeah. I was talking about Star Wars, not Star Trek, man. That would that'd be exactly how I would sound. I think we need to go back and start this podcast over with you doing that voice the, the whole way The entire through. time. Yeah. In fact, if if we can time travel and do the entire run of forward thinking. <laughs> and that's, doing and that's when our podcast numbers plummeted. <laughs> okay. Well, okay. you know, actually, I can kind of see that. That, that might be a concern. Uh, you, you might want to, I don't know. That might be a good case for if you were to ever have a sort of uh, I don't know, utility putty yeah. to have it be a standalone system that's not connected to the Internet. Yeah, sure. Yeah. I mean, I, I can't. It's hard for me to imagine that simply because right now the trend is to connect more and more of our stuff to the Internet. 
and it's to have fewer and fewer standalone systems that yeah. are isolated from the internet. But it could be that because of things like internet security that we start to see a a trend Reversal. reversing that. Yeah. It, it could happen. We could start to see things like self-contained networks that don't that either have limited or no connectivity to the internet overall. That could become uh, a, a trend in at least the for you know the near future. I don't know that that's sustainable yeah. forever, yeah. but um, I did have one more naysayer question. Okay. Um, but I think that we've I think that we've mostly covered this one. But but I'm going to go ahead and say it out loud. Um, okay, based on the way that 3D printing technology is is moving these days, um, becoming cheaper and and more advanced, and, and using multiple materials and and electronics mm-hmm. that you can print right into your your 3D printed stuff. Sure. Um, you know, just at what point, like, like, I can't imagine a universe in which um, programmable materials become cheap and plentiful enough to replace the kind of advances that we're seeing in 3D printing these days. That's a that's yeah. that's a very fair criticism. I think the the one big benefit, obviously, we've talked about is that in the ideal implementation, programmable material can take on any shape. So it replaces Practically anything that that material is able, like anything that any shape that material can make, it replaces whatever that would have been. Right. Right. So in your kitchen example, it could replace all your kitchen accessories, which at least anything that's not necessarily like a blender or a toaster or something like that. Oh, sure, sure. You know, it's because you don't need a whisk 24 hours a day. If you do, you're doing something that I'm not entirely sure I want to know about. It goes Um, back to my college (laughs) days and the quantum entanglement. But at any rate... (laughs) Uh, but but no, no. I mean, it could be a potato peeler or it could be. Right, right. So a spatula or right. Yeah. That's that's the benefit, because obviously with traditional 3D printing, you are printing a set object. And that's what that that's what it's going to be until you throw it away or it breaks. Right. It's it's going to be that thing. It's not going to suddenly morph into a different shape. However, if this programmable matter is prohibitively expensive so that the buy in cost is so high that it doesn't make sense to ever get it, even though it can theoretically be, you know, quote unquote, whatever you need it to be, it would make much more sense to go the 3D printed route, which is going to be less expensive. So economics plays a role. I mean, that's one of those things where we talk about the possibilities, and this plays across all areas of science and technology. We talk about the things that are possible versus the things that are probable. We might prove in the lab that a certain approach is possible. But if it's not economically feasible, it's not plausible. Right, right. And and I certainly don't want to say that that everyone should stop researching this kind of thing immediately because it's useless, because A, uh, I would never say that about science because all science is useful in one way or another, mm-hmm. um, even if it's just the learning process that we go through to reach a conclusion that something is is less than feasible. Um, however, uh, yeah, no, I mean, I just wanted to to throw a little bit of reality in, into sure. this. I mean, I mean, it would be so awesome if we actually created this. Like, we didn't even get into the industrial uses for this kind of right. stuff. Like, if, if you could create a bridge that you could reprogram on the fly. Sure, um, yeah. In, in, in case of a natural disaster or something like yeah. that. Uh, or, I mean, think about if you had... I don't know, airplane wings that could adjust themselves oh, in man. shape to yeah. be maximum efficiency at different stages of flight. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, there, there are all kinds of different things that you could do that we can just sit here and imagine. Part of the most interesting thing about something like uh, this Claytronics programmable matter future is that we can't really predict all the ways that this kind of technology would change our lives. It seems like it could be one of those things that's just a total flop, mm-hmm. you know, like, oh, we thought this would be really cool, but, you know, eh, who cares? Or it could be completely revolutionary, and I really can't tell which. Mm-hmm. Right. We're, we're Again, we're in the infancy, so there's no way of telling yet, right? But we're learning tons about artificial intelligence, swarm intelligence, modularity, robotics, computer science. There's so much that and we're learning. Chemi- chemical and physical properties. Exactly, uh, yeah. All of this information is useful. Yeah. Yeah. So quantum entanglement with chili cheese fries. We're learning so much. (laughs) And whisks, apparently. I don't like to talk about it. (laughs) Actually, I'm mandated not to. Um, But at any rate, no, it's it's really cool that we... What, Joe? Look, I'm imagining that you're you're whisking your chili cheese fries until they're properly emulsified. It's close enough. All right. So at any rate, uh, yeah, we're, we're learning so much that... 
even if ultimately we never see an implementation that approaches the ideal one, uh, we're going to benefit in other ways that we can't even anticipate right now. And that's that's just the way science is. And in fact, that's the why that's why I'm always very passionate about advocating for science, because, you know, to have to advocate science to say that there's some end goal and that that end goal is going to be valuable so that you can justify the funding of it is one of the the banes of science. Oh, I mean, it's sure. a it's a reality yeah. in our world, but it's to, good to keep in mind. But but, yeah. it, but it shouldn't be a limiting factor, right? On oh. Doing awesome research. Yeah, people want promises. I mean, they want short term gains, things they can see. Well, I mean, it's you it, if you're if you're ultimately having to justify giving money to someone, then I can understand. You know, I understand both sides, right? I understand the psychology that goes into both sides. Uh, that's why I'm really hoping we can get to that Star Trek economy we talked about a few episodes ago so that we no longer have to worry about money and we can just end up uh, pursuing scientific endeavors without any in limitations. Jumpsuits. Yeah. In yeah. jumpsuits and, and with little communicators. Never forget the jumpsuits. I, You know I can't. I've tried. All right, so that wraps up this discussion about Claytronics and programmable matter. If you guys have any questions or suggestions for future topics, let us know. Send us an email. The address is fwthinking at howstuffworks.com or drop us a line on Twitter, Google Plus, or Facebook. At Twitter and Google Plus, we are fwthinking. Just search fwthinking and Facebook will pop right up. Leave us a message and we'll talk to you again really soon. For more on this topic and the future of technology, visit forwardthinking.com. Brought to you by Toyota. Let's go places. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Asking the right questions can greatly impact your future, especially when it comes to your finances. So if you're looking for a financial advisor you can trust, certified financial planner professionals are committed to acting in your best interest. That's why it's got to be a CFP. Find your CFP professional at letsmakeaplan.org. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Hey guys, you know what this playground could use? A wine country, huh? A redwood forest would be cool. Ski slopes! Wait! Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com. Tired of restless nights? At Lisa, we know good sleep is essential for mental, physical, and emotional health. From memory foam mattresses to hybrids that keep you cool all night long, Lisa's mattresses offer exceptional comfort and support with free delivery and 100 nights to try out your mattress in the comfort of your home. For a limited time, save up to $700 off select mattresses plus two free pillows. Go to lisa.com slash iHeart for an additional $50 off mattresses and select goods. Exclusions apply. See lisa.com for more details.